Citizen Book Club podcast. My name is James. And I'm Marco Sparks. Hello, hello, Marco. It's episode six of the pod. We're talking about Snow Crash, chapters 26 through 30. This is a big one. This is uh, one of the big info dump sections of the book. I know I probably say this every time, but these this string of chapters must have been really fun to write. Yeah, I don't know how we're going to podcast about some of it because I don't know if people want to listen to us read massive chunks of uh of you know lore dumping, but we'll we'll see how we do it. I'm gonna have to trust really, that people have read this somewhat, you know. Really well written lore dumping, but yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. All right. So you have two minutes to have Neil Stevenson explain anything to you. What would it be? I don't know. Why do you always like like ambush me with this question that I had not had time to prepare for at the end of the episode? I, I have I'm no idea. Two episodes now. Yeah. I want Neil Stevenson to tell me a really dirty joke. Okay. I mean, there's a ex- very long extended joke about a guy having Tourette's in um, uh, the confusion. So I feel like he could do it. But I can't wait till we get to an episode what, 50, the podcast. Oh, be much more than that. <laughs> it's going to be a while <laughs> before we get there. All right. Um, but let's see. When when last we left off with our heroes, uh, YT had uh, done this special delivery for the mafia where she takes these uh, the snow crash to the Reverend Wayne's pearly gates. And the people there are just like junkies. So you like, can't wait to snort it up and won't even sign for it. Yeah. So chapter 26. Catching back up with Hero. Uh, we last left off with him. He was just having a beer considering the city and America and what it means to you know, to live in an urban landscape versus the bird place. I mean, in David's place, looking over the LA skyline, mm-hmm. basically having like a Raymond Chandler moment. Yeah. Uh, and, and then now it's, it's birds are circling overhead, trying to decide whether he's alive or dead. I hear it climbs down from the roof of the turret and throwing caution to the wind drinks three glasses of LA tap water. So we just got really shit face up there and passed out basically. Yeah. yeah it's daytime now. Uh, most of the soldiers from like uh, Admiral Jim's or whatever are gone, except for a guard unit down the road. So he throws some bacon into the microwave. I like that it mentions Gaunt- he he locks all the doors and looks out on the hillside because he can't stop thinking about Raven. So he's definitely still got that on his mind. Yeah, goggles into the metaverse, uh, goes with the Black Sun. I completely forgot about it, it as a thing, especially it's pre- prevalent on the internet. Obviously, the Black Sun here does not reference the weird Norse hate symbol. Um, wasn't even where it's a thing. Fuck them. Yeah, it's a it's a big thing. It's underlying to a lot of like the MAGA shit and the mm-hmm. QAnon shit. Uh, but yeah, currently Black Sun, I think, because the time is full of Asians. Um, it's it's nighttime on the street and in the metaverse. He's currently the only American in there. Uh, we find out there's some meeting rooms in the back of the Black Sun where people can have private meetings. So he goes back there and finds an avatar of Juanita. Unlike her previous one, this one looks exactly like her with no embellishment. Yeah, even. Yeah, no effort to hide the early suggestion of crow's feet at the corners of her big black eyes. So yeah. that's it. So uh, she's an or- going to Oregon. She's on a plane, so she might cut out. Uh, and he's like, Portland? She's like, no, Astoria. Why is she going to Astoria at a time like this? And she takes a deep breath and lets out Jake Lee. If I told you, we'd get into an argument. Yeah. He he asks about David if there's a diagnosis. And she says there's not going to be one. It's not. It's a software issue, not a hardware issue. Uh, he tells her what happened in the Black Sun the night before after she left. She says that the Brandy Scroll sent binary code info straight into David's optic nerve, which, you know, is a part of the brain. Yeah, she says that David had a snow crash last night inside his head. And it's yeah. a new phenomenon, a very old one, actually. <laughs> yeah, since he's a, since David was a hacker, he's incredibly susceptible to this kind of attack. We've heard this before. And she adds, 
So are you, homeboy. <laughs> uh, it's a metavirus. It's the atomic bomb of informational warfare, a virus that causes any system to infect itself with new viruses. Uh, he people, wasn't affected because hacking he was, brains. Yeah, he wasn't affected because he was too far away from the bitmap. Uh, you have to be right up and close to it. So, um, you know, get ready to have the book explained to you. He points out that, that Raven's also distributing a drug, IRL, called Snow Crash. Yeah, uh, what is it? She says, it's not a drug. They make it look like a drug and feel like a drug so that people want to take it. It's laced with cocaine and some other stuff. Nice. Says, well, it's not a drug. What is it? It's chemically processed blood serum taken from people who are infected with the metavirus. Uh, one of you says, that is, it's just another way of spreading the infection. Who's spreading it? L. Bob Rice Private Church. All those people are infected. And there's just a, a absolutely classic exchange here where he says, this, uh, here it says, this snow crash thing. Is it a virus, a drug, or a religion? Juanita shrugs. What's the difference? Yeah. That's like, you write that line and you just like stand up and high five yourself and like, or like run around the room for 10 minutes, just being like pumping your fist. Like, fuck yeah. 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 Which I presume is, is a lot of Neil Stevenson's writing process, mm-hmm. but like pantsless. Sure. Uh, yeah. He, he points out that she's a religious person and she tells him not to lump all religions together. And again, there's just this long, excellent paragraph i like how he just says sorry um i i found myself really appreciating the hero and we need exchanges that we're getting um more so than like when i first read the book i think they just like maybe i was younger they didn't leave quite the impression on me then i feel like there's there's a lot happening very subtly here the way he just says sorry when she says Mm -hmm. don't lump our religions together i feel like that's a huge window into heroes uh like headspace right now but it's all inferred you just you have to be thinking like you have to be inside a hero's well, head to really see like why he's reacting in this way or that way. If you pick up on that line and what it could mean for her hero's headspace, <laughs> then you're really going to appreciate at the end of this episode and the end of these chapters when he says to the librarian, like, if I spend some more time with you, things are going to get really interesting with Juanita. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, we get we get the start of some talk about Enki and and what happened four thousand years ago and Sargon the so second. There have been several efforts to deliver us from the hands of primitive rational religion. The first was made by someone named Enki about four thousand years ago. The second was made by Hebrew scholars in the eighth century BC, driven out of their homeland by the invasion of Sargon the uh, second. But eventually, it just devolved into empty legalism. Another attempt was made by Jesus. That one was hijacked by viral influences within fifty days of his death. The virus was suppressed by the Catholic Church, but we're in the middle of a big epidemic that started in Kansas in 1900 and has been gathering momentum ever since. So the Hebrew scholars in the 8th century, is that the Deuteronomist? I think so. I I think that's what that's referring to. Yeah. Yeah. um, If you're particularly religious, buckle up because this book's about to go deep into like the origins of like Abrahamic religions. And mm. it's not really a concern. It's like showing deference to anyone's beliefs here. So no, uh, as an atheist myself, I'm like fully in on it, but I don't know if well, I have to say this, if you're this, pretty religious, you might find this uh, a little bracing. You're pretty religious. And you've been following our podcast for a while. Yeah, you probably find that pretty bracing too. Um, but I have to say this had a, this book had a huge reformative, thing with me about just how i viewed religion and what was actually interesting to me about religion like in my early 20s um i just remember thinking it it was just fascinating that this idea of like oh why does like a certain religion tell you not to eat this kind of food is it part of some like spiritual right or is it because they knew that like people got sick when they ate that food more often 
So they just had to stop people from eating that kind of food. You know, it's like right. just to protect the civilization. Well, and the idea just that, like, I came to realize that early Christianity was, you know, an urban movement that some would call terrorists and some would call freedom fighters. And like things like Re- or, uh, Revelation aren't talking about the literal end of the world. They're coded references to like call to arms to like take on Roman soldiers. And yeah, fight about a for your particular freedom. Roman emperor, you know? Yeah, 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 like like the you know the name of the beast is, is like a coded way that they talk, refer to figures of power. Honestly, the Book of Revelations is just the TV show Andor <laughs> coming soon to Disney Plus. Um, we should talk about that after the fun. Oh, I saw a great Twitter joke too, where some some imperial officers just like, "What's your first name, Cassian? You got a last name? It's not an Andor question." <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> um. So anyway. Yeah, so he asks if she believes in Jesus, and she says yes, but not the bodily resurrection of Jesus. She's businesslike throughout this. Hero can tell that she's tired and scared. She tells him to go through the Babel stack that she gave him, that info, uh, and to get back to her. It, and if she comes back from Astoria, where she's going for research. Well, she, she's, um, she doesn't want to have much to say. She doesn't want to get into it now. She says she doesn't want to prejudice Hero's thinking, quote, at this point. And he says, does that imply that there's going to be some other point? Is this a continuing relationship? Uh, and she's like, uh, do you want to find the people who infected David? And he's like, hell yes. She's like, well, then look at the Babel stack. I'll, you know, visit me after I get back from Astoria. And, and look into somebody named Inanna in the Babel stack. Because you have to understand her to understand what one is going to do in Oregon. And he's like, who's Inanna? And she says, a Sumerian goddess. I'm sort of in love with her. Anyway, you can't understand what I'm about to do until you understand Inanna. I like how he says, uh, when you get back, I want to spend some time with you. She says, the feeling's mutual, but we have to get out of this first. So yeah. he's got some motivation now. You know, like, sure, there's a whole hacker info apocalypse thing. But also, uh, you, you know, get it wet. this this lady might uh, be interested in him again. And he might be old enough and mature enough to, like, understand what that means. Yeah, yeah. This is uh, the alternative sequel to 500 Days of Summer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so he's going to get it wet maybe someday in the future. But right now he's going to get it intellectually wet. Uh, so well, the first main time he's going the, to attack him. Yeah, he comes out of the ma- the main part of the Black Sun. There's a shitty avatar moving around, clearly not sure how to control itself and bumping into things. He comes closer, sees that it's a Clint. Can you discuss the Clints and how they relate to the Brandies? I mean, it's it's like a Ken doll to Barbie, is I, I okay. guess. I mean, I I assume it's called a Clint because we're supposed to think of like young Clint Eastwood, you know, just kind of like this square jawed, flinty eyed, uh, you know. All American so, avatar. This Clint's got a scroll and tries to shove it in Hero's face. He acts fast, cuts the Clint's arms off with his sword. It, yes, and and it runs away, basically pinballing its way out of the black sun. It says it's like crashing into things. He leans down without looking, sweeps the scroll into a trap door, one of the ones that he coded and created, and only he can use. Um, and he says that the guy reaches the street, he's gone. He'll turn into a translucent ghost. So he wants to capture this guy so he can, like, you know, trace where he came from. Yeah. Um, and so he he's running out. He's almost at the door. He sees there's a bunch of black and whites outside the club. One of those black and whites is YT. She's loitering out there waiting for Hero to come out. And he shouts, YT, chase that guy with no arms. Yeah. Um, he drops into a tunnel, sees the graveyard demon holding the scroll, about to take it to the fire. He tells the graveyard demon to take it to his office instead, but to roll it up first so he doesn't have to look at it. Mm-hmm. Because uh, this is presumably Snow Crash. Yeah, so he's, um, so he's be being, able to analyze it. So he's being directly targeted. Yeah, yeah. It's like they just sent in like a digital suicide bomber or something, you know, to like try yeah. to like show him this thing. 
So using the tunnels, they go into the street, into the neighborhood where he's where he has his house, and the scrolls are deposited there, and he goes up to his office. And then his phone rings. He picks it up, and it's YT, and he says, where are you? She says, in reality or the metaverse? And he says, both. Uh, in the metaverse, she's on the monorail uh, going around like the ports that like circle the uh, the street. She just passed port 35. She's on the same train as the uh, the Clint. We're in chapter 27 now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she's in reality, she's a public terminal across the street from a Reverend Wayne's franchise. She made her delivery. He She tells him the whole story of that and the aluminum case. And, and the wants- babbling, how it's the same kind of babbling as from the park. Yeah. Yeah. The park people. So he hangs up to go do some research. Uh, goes and talks to the librarian and the info dump that Juanita gave. I, I want to say, I like how they both call each other pod now. Like, here it says, I'll talk to you later, pod. Got some serious research to do. Yeah. Uh, he asks about speaking in tongues, of which we learned the technical term is glossolalia, uh, something merely exploited in religious practices. And he, uh, he says, you know, is, is this a Christian thing? And again, another fantastic chapter, you know, Pentecostal Christians think so but they are deluding themselves. Uh, it, it goes back to the Greeks and the pagans. Plato called it theomania. Oriental cults of the Roman Empire did it. Hudson Bay Eskimos, Chuchki shamans, Lops, Yuckets, Samang pygmies, the North Bornea cults. I mean, many, many across the world. Uh, it's the language yeah. of nature. Yeah, and so here asks what causes it, and the librarian says, if mystical explanations are ruled out, then it seems that glossolalia comes from structures buried deep within the brain, common to all people, deep structures again. Um, and then there's kind of a kind of a description of somebody um, observing a revival in 1906, uh, observing the basic symptoms, complete loss of rational control, dominance of emotion that leads to hysteria, absence of thought or will, automatic functioning of the speech organs, amnesia, and occasional sporadic physical, physical manifestations such as jerking or twitching. Yeah. And that same phenomenon is observed in the year 300, uh, saying that the false prophet begins a deliberate suppression of conscious thought and ends in a delirium over which he has no control. Question for you. Yes. Have you ever seen somebody see, speak in tongues? In person? Yes. No. Hmm. I have. It's not, creepy. Uh, not, not that I directly interpreted it as speaking in tongues. I have seen people having episodes that mm-hmm. I didn't at the time define as tongues. Yeah, I, I have. It's weird. And a religious practice? Mm-hmm. This is a, something your family took you to? Yeah. Go on. I, I don't know what else to say. It's weird. It's it's okay. pretty creepy. It feels like you're watching somebody have a seizure. Mm. Uh, all right. So, so I mean, glossolalia is, is I've, I've read in other fiction, it is called the language of the angels because everybody hears what they want to hear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so he asks, you know, what's the Christian justification for this? Is there anything in the Bible that backs it up? And the librarian says, Pentecost. And I love that Kuro is not religious at all. It's refreshing, helpful from both me personally, but also, you know, to, to get well, this I think, information. I think he mentions at one point he's like been to Sunday school. So it's not like complete Greek to him. Right, right, but right. Yeah. But I mean, but like the, this this kind of interesting beyond Dan Brown real history. It would, it would be kind of annoying if if hero was like kind of objecting constantly, I guess, yeah. you know, like hero has an intellectual mind and he's like curious to hear different sources and observations and kind of comparative religion. He's not like fighting it the whole time, you know, I don't right, think it would right, really right. work if he was, um, but well, yeah, so it comes from a Greek word meaning 50th refers to the 50th day after the crucifixion. 
He says, Juanita just told me that Christianity was hijacked by viral influences when it was only 50 days old. She must have been talking about that. What is it? So what the Pentecost is when a bunch of people start speaking in tongues in the Bible. We can, we can skip this whole massive section of acts here, but um, it's where in theory, everybody's speaking the language that somebody else can understand and they're converting like masses of people at once. This book is essentially positing that it's like, it's the metavirus spreading itself. Yeah. We get the term xenoglossy, which is a way of learning people's languages without learning it, which is kind of what L. Bob Rife was discussing doing on the raft and those those news articles. And we hear, for example, uh, someone talking about how uh, some people converted 50,000 native South Americans to Christianity without learning their native language. And so Hero points out that that means it spread through the population faster than smallpox. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we're going to go to a whole thing about uh, Jewish religious authorities, uh, the three groups of Jews at the time of, of the, these biblical eras, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. Essenes or something, yeah. And he says, I remember the Pharisees from Jesus Christ Superstar. They're the ones with the deep voices who were always hassling Christ. Yeah. Uh, it says they were hassling him because they were very religiously strict. They yeah. adhere to a strong legalistic version of the religion. The law of capital mm-hmm. L. He makes the analogy that they wanted to do a contract renegotiation, 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 renegotiation. Sorry, with the God, with God. Uh, and the Satuchis were materialists, materialists in the philosophical sense. All philosophies are either monists or dualists. You know, monists believe in the material world is the only world, hence materialists. Dualists believe in a binary universe that is both a spiritual world in addition to the material world. And he makes a joke about, you know, he as a hacker, he has to believe in a binary universe, which he has to explain the joke to the librarian who says, how droll. Yeah. Your joke may not be without merit, though. And he's like, computers rely on the one and zero to represent all things. The distinction between something and nothing, this pivotal separation between being and non-being, it's quite fundamental and underlies many creation myths. And Hero's like, he's not sure if the librarian's like fucking with him. It's like he he can't be. He's a piece of code, but yet it seems like he's like being made fun of. There's a fascinating device throughout these chapters of the info dump and the librarian and their dialogue where due to to both normal conversation that two people would have, Hero will use these turns of phrases or he'll use analogies or whatever. And the librarian will have to constantly correct him and be like, I'm a machine. I'm a program. You know, I can't extrapolate. Yeah. I can't do analogies. I, I you need a human being to do that, which is both like I, I think indicative of like the the nuance of language, but also it's a great way for a writer to break up like here's what the Pharisees are, here's what the Sadducees are. You know, he's he's really broken up. But um, there's a great bit where he's talking about uh, uh, well, the, creation the, myths. the meaning of the word science. I, I like yeah. this part where it's like. And then he starts, you know, like, oh, science it literally means to cut. And the hero's like, well, what about sword? It's like, well, it's, it's a root of several meanings. He's kind of going off. And then the hero's like, let's stay on track here. It's like, you can literally feel Neil Stevenson getting off track into yeah. like word meanings, you know? It's like, oh, wait, wait, let's let's focus. What are we supposed to be talking about? Ah, uh, yes, the, uh, the, the different types of um, like... You know the Jews back then. There was the Essenes, or well, 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 so there's a great, there's a great Neil Stevenson dad joke here, mm-hmm. where the librarian's like, "We can keep this fork available for later." And the hero's mm-hmm. like, "I don't want to get all forked up." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Tell me about the third group, the Essenes. Uh, they live communally and believe that physical and spiritual cleanliness were intimately connected. They were constantly bathing themselves, lying naked under the sun, purging themselves with enemas, and going to extreme lengths to make sure that their food was pure and uncontaminated. 
They even had their own version of the Gospels in which Jesus healed possessed people, not with miracles, but by driving parasites such as tapeworms out of their body. These parasites are considered to be synonymous with demons. Yep. So there's, it's like a real kind of confusion of sort of spiritual, you know, demons and physical ailments as, as though they're the same thing. Yeah. Which is kind of a, I, I, I don't know, even like a lot of like modern religions, but it's kind of a Christian science thing, right? I wouldn't know. Um, because I believe they don't, they don't believe in like medical help because. Like I said, I wouldn't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Hero mentions that Lagos used the word Namshub. The librarian says it comes from Sumerian, the oldest of written languages. And we're going to go deep. Oh, yeah. Sumerian Let's languages. talk about Sumeria. Uh, is used in Mesopotamia until roughly 2000 BC, so 4,000 years ago. Remember that. Yeah. Um, um, so and, he asked. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just a hero. I asked, do all languages descend from it? And librarian says, actually, no. No languages whatsoever are descended from Sumerian. It's an agglutinative language, meaning that it's a collection of morphemes and syllables that are grouped into words. Very unusual. Here says, you're saying. Uh, that if I could hear somebody speak in Sumerian, it would sound like a long stream of short syllables strung together. Yes, sir. Would it sound anything like glossolalia? Judgment call. Ask someone real, the librarian yeah. said. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no evidence of Sumerian influence in other languages. You know, he, Hero asks what happened to Sumerians? Was there a genocide? And he says that they were conquered, but there's no evidence of genocide. There are like maybe 10 people in the world who can understand or speak Sumerian. Five of them, he, he lists like where they're located throughout the world. The other five are all working for the El Bob Bible College. In Houston, Texas. Yeah, I like the line where he says, everybody gets conquered sooner or later, but their languages don't die out. Why did Sumerians disappear? Um, we don't really know. He says, since yeah. I'm just a piece of code, I'd be on very thin ice to speculate. Yeah, uh, so the Namshub. It's a speech with magical force. The closest English equivalent would be incantation, but that has a number of incorrect connotations. A speech with magical force. Yeah. The, the Sumerians believe in magic, and then he librarian like quotes from a, a certain source. He says, religion, magic, and medicine are so completely intertwined in Mesopotamia that separating them is frustrating and perhaps futile work. Mm -hmm. So they're all I mean, the same. And so Hero can think about that in, in the terms of like the metaverse, which, mm -hmm. where magic is possible. It's a fictional structure made out of code. Code is just a form of speech, a form that computers understand. So the metaverse is entirely could be considered a single vast namshub enacting itself on El Babarai's fiber optic network. And then he gets a call from YT. Says, me again, I'm selling the train. Stumps got off on it. Express port 127. And she says, hmm, that's the antipode of downtown, meaning it's like as far away from downtown as you can get without, you know, going around. Yeah. She says, is it? And he says, yeah, 127 is 2 to the 7th power minus 1. She says, spare me, I'll take your word for it. It's definitely on the middle of fucking nowhere. It's 20,000 miles away. Yeah. Um, uh, there, out there is a black cube that is 20 miles long. I like how he says, how can you measure a black cube that big? And she says, I'm riding along, looking at the stars, okay? Suddenly, I can't see them anymore on the right side of the train. I start counting local ports. I count 16 of them. We get to Express Port 127, and Stumpy climbs off and goes towards the black thing. I count 16 more local ports, and then the stars come out. And then I take 32 kilometers and multiply it by 0.6, and I get 20 miles. You asshole. <laughs> So that's good. That's good intel. She says, who do you think owns a black cube 20 miles across? He says, just going on pure irrational bias. I'm guessing El Bob Reif. Yeah. So that's chapter 27. So now we're in chapter 28. Well, I think uh, he asked her at some point, like, why didn't you follow her? And she's like, it's in the middle of fucking nowhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
I thought there was uh, a new oh, room. He, one, one detail that will come up later. He's, uh, Hero mentions that some of us used to smash uh, into, what does he say here? Something about racing motorcycles. Oh, yeah. He says some of us used to smash into it occasionally when we were uh, out racing motorcycles. The this, black cube. This black cube, yeah. yeah. Uh, so there's a new room in Hero's house, and the librarian walk into it. In this new room, there's some 3D models of some old Sumerian artifacts. Uh, um, there's a some, big slab of baked clay. Yeah. Um, there's a wooden pole with like branches on top, like a stylized tree. And then there's like a, an eight foot high obelisk that's covered in cuneiform with like a bas relief figure chiseled in the top, um, which I think is supposed to be like the king handing uh, Enki like a staff or something. Mm. There, there's a picture of it actually in, in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the room is filled with these like three dimensional constellations of hypercards that are just like moving around like a high speed, like a high speed photographs, blizzards in progress. I like how he describes it as like somebody's desktop with just like shit tons of files all over it, but like in three dimensions. It's like almost like this like atom, atom recreation, you know, thing floating in the air. Um, the cloud of hypercards extends to every corner of the 50 by 50 foot space. And from four level all the way up, up about eight feet, which is high as Lagos's avatar could reach. There are a total of 10,463 hypercards. They're broken into four categories by Lagos biblical studies, Sumerian studies, neurolinguistic studies, and intel gathered on El Bob Rife, which is like some of these info dump chapters are basically yeah. all in these categories. Yeah. <laughs> Here it says, without going into any kind of detail, what did Lagos have on his mind? What was he getting at? Librarian says, what do I look like, a psychologist? Yeah. I can't answer those kind of questions. Stevenson's having a lot of fun playing with what 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 kind of information the librarian can and can't dump here. And I, I do feel like sometimes the librarian's like a little more capable than other times, mm-hmm. you know, like summarizing and whatnot. I, I, some of it's like, well, he heard Lagos talking about it so he can repeat it type of thing. But um, I don't know. It's, <laughs> it's is quite the um, the writing mechanic to dump a ton of infos to just have an AI librarian spouting information at you. Like I said, it's, it's, it's a way to, to break up some of these sections, but also he's, he's unable of, of writing interesting characters without having fun Mm -hmm. with the bizarre intrinsic details that are true to them. Like that's, that's, that's the thing of his characters. They all have flaws to a point and those are so bizarre and interesting. On this section of the book, this is, this is a section that is written for people who like it's 2 a.m. You're still surfing the net. You come across a Wikipedia article for like the Carolingian dynasty or something. Yeah. And you're like, fuck, yeah, I'm going to read this whole thing. Like if you're that kind of person, you know, this is a section for you. Or it's just like I, we're, we're just going to info dump on some weird, obscure history stuff and you're into it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, something that may or may not have led you here from like the Matrix. Yeah. Um, and, and this isn't written in the 90s. This is like preceding having access to yeah. Wikipedia. I should say, I mean, he's he's quoting a lot here. Some of it is sourced. I have no idea whether some of this is total bullshit or not. It could be. I don't know. It all sounds very interesting. All yeah, the stuff yeah. about the Deuteronomist and um Oh, MP I would totally read a book that. about yeah. this, but I don't know if the book would be as well written and, and concise as this. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, yeah, the people who just they're obsessing over the we, we got the the young people who are true crime experts or they're <laughs> Hitler experts or the one time I was late to something because I just sat around reading a Wikipedia article about the Korean War. Um, so here asks how old these artifacts are. You know, the clay envelope he describes as Sumerians from the third millennium BC. It was dug up in the city of Eridu in the southern Iraq. 
The Black Steel Obelisk is the Code of Hammurabi, which dates around 1750 BC. The tree-like structure is the Yahwistic cult totem from Palestine. It's called an Asherah. It's from 900 BC. He's like, did you call that slab an envelope? He's like, yeah, it's a smaller clay slab wrapped up inside of it. It's how the Sumerians would, would made tamper-proof documents. Yeah, so we find out uh, that the Asherah and the Code of Hammurabi are in museums. The clay envelope is in the personal collection of El Babarif. Yeah. The El Babarif uh, Bible College, which he found, was the richest archaeology department in the world. They've been conducting a dig in Eridu, which was the cult center of the Sumerian god named Enki. Enki, our boy. Our boy, Enki. Um, we get some interesting details about like why why we have this type of information about the Sumerians um, as opposed to other religions like or other cultures like the Greeks or the Egyptians. And Librarian says, Egypt was a civilization of stone. They made their art and architecture of stone, so it lasts forever. But you can't write on stone, so they invented papyrus and wrote on that. Papyrus is perishable, so even though their art and architecture has survived, their written records, their data have largely disappeared. Uh, and here I asked about the hieroglyphic inscriptions, and uh, Librarian says, bumper stickers, Lagos called them, corrupt political speech. Then an unfortunate tendency to write inscriptions praising their military, own military victories before the battles had actually taken place. Yeah. Uh, so we learned Sumer on the other uh, side is uh, civilization of clay. Yes, they made their buildings of of clay. They wrote on it. Their statues were gypsum, so they dissolved in water. But their buildings and statues, uh, you know, have fallen apart to the elements. But the clay tablets were baked or buried in jars, and so they have a bunch of data from the Sumerians have, that have survived. Later, they'll talk about how they would make a building. They would write on every brick of it. And, you know, things would come along and cause the building to fall over. And he would just have this dispersal of information, these bricks just sprung about. Yeah, I think he, he quotes uh, from the Koran about um, the angels destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. Mm-hmm. And it kind of references the um, that promiscuous dispersal of information. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the other detail where he gives him a little personality is that sometimes he'll be like, well, this is what Lagos called it. Mm-hmm. Here's, here's, a, here's a little bit of personality that I have by the guy who created me. Um, but yeah, as many megabytes, what do we have is we have as many megabytes as the archaeologists have dug up. Uh, uh, so yes, uh, the librarian, what is the inscription on this clay envelope? Like has it been translated and the librarian says, yes, it is a warning. It says this envelope contains the Namshub of Enki. Yeah. So what is a Namshub? What is a Namshub of Enki? Uh, the story and an incantation is self-fulfilling fiction. Lagos believed that in its original form, which this translation only hints at, it actually did what it describes. So we, so here, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but there is like this translation here. Some of the highlights are man had an arrival to Enlil in one tongue, gay speech, uh, change the speech in their mouths, put contention into it, into the speech of man. There had been one. So it's, it's, it's like the tower of Babel, basically, you know, it's like all was good. You know, there was, there was no wild dog, no wolf, no fear, no terror, you know, all was good. And then um, this thing happened, you know, and changed the speech in their mouths. Yeah. And, and it seemingly Enki did this. Yeah. He the name Bab- of Enki caused Babel to happen. Yeah. Lagos believed that Babel is an actual historical event, happened in a particular time and place, coinciding with the disappearance of the Sumerian language, that prior to Babel or, or in, in Focalypse, mm-hmm. say it again? In Focalypse? Apocalypse yeah. languages tend to converge. After that, languages have always been in, in a tendency to diverge and become mutually incomprehensible. That this tendency is, as he put it, coiled like a serpent around the human brainstem. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, 
Um, so did Lagos think Babel really happened? He was sure of it. He was quite concerned about the vast number of human languages. He felt there were simply too many of them. Um, and so let's see, librarian. Oh, the, yeah, the Damshavenki is basically a neurolinguistic uh, virus. Um, the last line of the thing, uh, of, the, of the translation is, the heart of my God, have it given back to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so chapter 29. Oh, oh no, 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 you're like rushing along here. Let's slow down a little bit. Um, because Lagos devoted much time and effort to this idea of uh, the, the Namshub. Uh, he says he felt that the Namshub Enki was a neurolinguistic virus. And as proof, there's this like letter that's um, written to Enki by somebody, by the scribe, um, like after like their speech has been robbed of them, basically. And it's like mm. the writer is like realizing as he writes it, like, my God, it is you, I fear, you know, like. Like the heart, the heart of my God, you have it given back to me. Like he's, he's writing about how they've like been completely struck and paralyzed by something and, and then how he thinks it's because of Enki. So I guess what we're saying is the Nam show of Enki. It's like, in a way it's like, it's like ending paradise kind of, mm-hmm. but is it also like, I don't know, allowing it or saving humanity from like a, a weird hive mind. I don't know. Well, we're gonna we're gonna find yeah. out that there's a, the counter to the Namshavenki, mm-hmm. um, and that you know we'll find out that that while they're all different, many cultures over the years have have a myth about paradise and the fall of paradise. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm just thinking about this idea of your 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 dialogue with your God, if you actually encountered your God and could speak to them. And I know it's the quote from from the movie came to me: uh, "The boot has no quarrel with the <laughs> ant." Yes. So uh, chapter 29, time to catch back up with YT. She's maxing at mom's truck stop. Uh, not she that hates. she would ever be caught dead at mom's truck stop. If like a semi ran over her with all 18 of its wheels in front of a mom's truck stop, she would drag herself down the shoulder of the highway using her eyelid muscles until she reached a snoozing cruise full of horny derelicts rather than go into a mom's truck stop. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the man with but glass she's a professional. eye is uh, assigned her. It's like a new job she's on. He's sent her here and he's going to spy her with the driver and security person. Yeah. She's here because she's a professional. It's part of the job. She says, mm-hmm. uh, we get it. We get a neologism courtesy of Neil Stevenson, the portmanteau of grotendous. We <laughs> combining grotesque and horrendous. Yeah. I like how Which, the mafia is just fully using YT for all sorts of crazy shit. now. Yeah. yeah she's, she's, she's brewed herself. Uh, she describes a, a pinball machine. features a chick with big boobs that lights up when you shoot the ball up the magic fallopians. Yeah, she's a, she's a made courier. I mm-hmm. mean, honestly, the beauty of language and words. My God, the uh, Diamond Age episodes. We're gonna have such oh. a fucking vocab session. Totally. Um, you're gonna so, you're gonna pass your SATs so that episode. So Those the guy episodes. she's supposed to meet, his name is Ing, I guess. Like Ng yeah. is like Ing. Uh, in reality, he's somewhere in Southern California. YT isn't sure exactly what he's driving. Some kind of van full of. What the man with the glass eye described as stuff, really incredible stuff that you don't need to know about. Yeah. And the metaverse, he lives outside of town around port two where things start to spread out. So she's going there in the metaverse. Like she's, she's ordered herself like a cherry pie and a coffee and gone to like a booth in the mom's truck stop to like goggle in. Uh, and she says visiting him is like going to Vietnam in about 1955, except that you don't have to get all sweaty. This is um, it's like basically like this, like, like French plantation, like a thing is Vietnamese. And it's, it's like, I don't know. Like, I feel like you can get a lot of the psychology of this guy that he chooses like this as his, it's like pre-war Vietnam, but like, he's the one in charge, you know? 
Did you ever see the uh, the Coppola director's cut of Apocalypse Now? No. It came out in the late no, 90s, early 2000s. There's a whole section that takes you out of the movie where uh, Martin Sheen goes to basically this house mm. and has like a dinner party with a bunch of French mm-hmm. colonialists who are just hanging out there. It like, completely takes you out of the fucking movie. Um, it just, I just kept thinking architecturally in the look and, and the feel of this. Um, I, I thought it was interesting that YT at one point says, and the fact that it's it, it, the, the fact that it's Vietnam makes it twisted and spooky, which makes me wonder, is there, did history end differently here? You know, like did things go differently for Vietnam in this like alternate version of history that we're reading? Cause it, a yeah. couple of times it's described as kind of like collapse of like the Asian countries. So maybe the Vietnam history that we have isn't quite the same as what's in the book. Right. Right. Uh, and, and then she wonders if it has bombings and strafings and napalm drops. That would be the best. Um, she's also very young. So she has, mm-hmm. and we find out that her father was there. Um, we're going to get her initial take on Ng and, and his avatar and what that looks like uh, before we find out some more stuff about him. But his avatar is there with a geisha rubbing his shoulders. We get some history about the Vietnam conflict and Japan's cruelty in it. And that YT's grandpa's over there, all of which is to say that Ng clearly gets a kick out of a, having a geisha rubbing his arms in fake Vietnam. Uh, but she wonders if the geisha is just a picture on his goggles on her goggles, what's the point? Because you wouldn't be able to feel it, she thinks here. Mm-hmm. Uh, he stands and bows to her in the in the in the metaverse. She says that this is how hardcore street wackos greet each other in the metaverse because they can't feel the handshake. Uh, and so it's this great exchange where he's like, "They told me a little bit about you," and she says, "Shouldn't listen to nasty rumors." <laughs> yeah, I think we somewhere in here YT mentions that like she kind of knows the metaverse, but she's not like good at it the way Hero is, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, He's taking a sip of a mint julep and the rendering is just perfect and super realistic to the point where you can see like the reflection of like the condensation and like the glass of the mirror. And she's like, it's just totally ostentatious. What a, what a bithead. Yeah. He is looking at her with a totally emotionless face, but YT imagines that it is a face of hate and disgust to spend all this money on the coolest house in the metaverse. And then have some skater come in done up in grainy black and white must be real kicking the metaphorical nuts. Yeah. Oh, and she also she's talking about the type of music that's playing and she describes it as yank wheelchair rock which is just a totally rad way to describe old people rock and roll yeah she he asks if she's a nova sicilian citizen she says no she's not but sometimes she just chills with uncle enzo and the boys uh, <laughs> we find out they, like as we know that ing does security usually the mafia handles their own security issues but if there's something extra technical they'll call him in but he usually works for mr lee what she notices, he doesn't say Mr. Lee's Greater Hong Kong, but she figures she, if she can name drop Uncle Enzo all casual, then he can name drop Mr. Lee. Yeah. He's also like making lots of weird, strange noises with his mouth, which yeah. uh, we'll learn that what that is in a bit. But yeah, I love she, that. She, she, like, initially, she initially assumes Tourette's. Yeah. He's the, dropping the Mr. Lee because she's dropping Uncle Enzo. Uh, yeah, so he, he bursts forth with a long string of twangy noises, pops and glottal stops. Fucking bitch, he mumbles. Excuse me? Nothing, he says. A bimbo box cut me off. None of these people understand that with this vehicle, I could crush them like a pot-bellied pig under an armored personnel carrier. He says, a bimbo box? Or she says, a bimbo box? Are you driving? He says, yes, I'm coming to pick you up, remember? Yeah. So she's like, what? So she she has to see what's going on behind this guy's desk because he keeps staring at stuff on it. He's got like all these little TV monitors showing like different views outside his van. He's like yeah. in the metaverse driving a van in reality. Yeah. This is all like... 
I feel like uh, Ready Player One's H character is mm-hmm. like th- definitely derived, like you know, like from this, like that character, like rolled around in a rig and it was like you know online mobile. Like I feel like this is just like well, a more hardcore version of it. It's an interesting way. Spoiler: There's a disability at play here, mm-hmm. and it's an interesting way to show how the technology would allow you to live and kind of thrive. Mm-hmm. Um, but back going back to Mr. Lee and, and what have you, he says the social structure of any nation state is ultimately determined by its security arrangements. Instead of hiring a large human security force, which impacts the social environment, you know, lots of minimum wage earners standing around carrying machine guns. Mr. Lee prefers to use non-human systems. Mm-hmm. So she's like very curious, you know, about him and his knowledge of the rat thing, but asking about it would get him off on the wrong foot, you know, her hitting up for in, him up for Intel. Um, yeah we learned she signs off from the metaverse and like a bunch of trucker truckers have like crowded around to watch her yeah and they all stare at her ass when she gets out to leave um well they're they're fascinated by this conversation that she's having with ing in the in in the metaverse yeah mm -hmm. so recognizing ing's van is easy enough it's enormous it's eight feet high and wider than high which would have made it a wide load in the old days when they had laws Uh, it's basically like just like massive like six-wheeled um just like tank basically there's like this huge grill that's like welded to the front it's like probably heavier than most cars like it it's something you could just like drive right through other cars with basically she gets in the passenger and the first thing she asks him is if he does he need to take a whiz or anything yeah and so um seemingly there's there's nobody there until she like goes to the driver's like compartment and it there's just like this like neoprene pouch about the size of a small garbage can, like suspended from the ceiling by all these like straps and shot cords and tubes and wires and shit. Um, and it's like there seemingly like there's like a small little patch at the top with some like skin and black hair, you know, coming out. It's like a balding man's head. Everything else is all encased in this like neoprene suit. So it's it's a person in there seemingly with no arms or legs it's just like a head and torso is like the impression you get enormous goggle slash mask slash headphones slash feeding tube unit she, she says yeah um it's 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 really something yeah. uh he's got attached got stuff going to his groin hooked up to various locations in his torso um and he says thank you all my needs are taken care of yeah he says please excuse my appearance my helicopter caught fire during the evacuation of saigon in 1974 is that a year early wasn't it 75 Oh, good question. Yeah. Uh, straight chaser from ground forces. And she says, whoa, what a drag. Says, I was able to reach an American aircraft carrier off the coast, but, you know, the fuel is spraying around quite a bit during the fire. She says, yeah, I can imagine. Uh-huh. Says, I tried prosthesis for a while. Some of them are very good, but nothing is as good as a motorized wheelchair. And then I got to thinking, why motorized? Why do motorized wheelchairs always have to be tiny, pathetic things that strain to go up a teeny little ramp. So I bought this. It is an airport fire truck from Germany and converted it in my new mobilized wheelchair. She says, very nice. She says, America is wonderful because you can get anything on a drive through basis. Oil change, liquor, banking, car wash, funerals, any funerals, anything you want. drive through. Uh, so this vehicle is much better than a tiny, pathetic wheelchair. It's an extension of my body. And she says, when the geisha rubs your back, you mumble something, um, his pouch begins to throb and undulate around his body. He says, she is a demon, of course. As for the massage, my body is suspended in electro-contractive gel that massages me when I need it. I also have a Swedish girl and an African woman, but those demons are not as well rendered. And so she's like, the, the mint julep? And he's like, well, through a feeding tube. Non-alcoholic. Ha ha. 
Uh, so they're going down the 405. They get past LAX. She asks what the plan is. They're going to go to the Termo Island Sacrifice Zone. The plan is for her to buy some drugs and then throw them up in the air, and he'll handle the rest of his backup, essentially. Terminal she guesses, Island Sacrifice Zone. Yeah, she guesses that that's non-human systems. And she says, you tired? Do you want me to drive or anything? And he laughs sharply, like a, like a distant akak. And the van almost swerves off the road. YT doesn't get the sense that he's laughing at the joke. He's laughing at what a jerk YT is. <laughs> I love YT so much. She's so yeah. much fun. All right. I, 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 but again, Stevenson characters, we, we've reached a point of hero's life where he's done some growth. Mm-hmm. Like we've heard about who he was and now he's doing some growth. But I think a lot of his characters can't help but be who they are. Like YT senses that she's probably being a huge asshole to this guy. Yeah. But she's not going to yeah. like stop being an asshole. Yeah. 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 That's they just like, can't... yeah, that's who she is. But, but not not think... that she's an asshole, but that she doesn't, her world doesn't know how to deal with somebody like Ian, you know? Well, and, and uh, not to be so vague, I'm not going to be spoilery, but the moment that I most remember of YT's character later in the book all comes down to, she has to be who she is mm-hmm. to the detriment of another character. <laughs> So there's your spoiler. Um, Yeah, chapter 30. Let's learn about the totem of the goddess Ashira. That's the other object, the tree-looking thing. Back to the hero and the librarian. Um, Hero says, now we're getting somewhere. Lago said that the brandy in the black sun was a cult prostitute of Ashira. Who is Ashira? Ashira was a consort of El, also known as Yawa. Uh, She was also known by other names. Elat, her most common epithet. The Greeks knew her as Dion or Rhea. The Canaanites knew her as Tanit or Hawa which is the same thing as Eve. Okay, so now we're getting somewhere. Yeah. The one with the serpent, or the yeah. one of the serpent. Or, or, or the, catech- the catechus. Yeah, yeah. Her, her symbol is a serpent coiling around tree or staff, the catechus. Which is which is your, med- your, your chief medical symbology, right? Mm-hmm. Um, God, there's so much great text here. Uh, God, I don't even know where to start. Yeah, we're, we're just learning about like who worshipped Ashura... And apparently, like a lot of people between India and Spain from second millennium BC to the Christian era, with the exception of the Hebrews. Yeah. Um, so let's see. Uh, yes, yeah, so we get the difference. The, the he, he, like, I thought the Hebrews were monotheists. How could they worship Asherah? And he's like, they're monolaterists. They do not deny the existence of other gods, but they were only supposed to worship Yahweh. And Asherah was venerated, venerated as a consort of Yahweh. And here is like, I don't remember anything about God having a wife in the Bible. He said, well, the Bible didn't exist at this point. Judaism was a loose collection of Yahwistic cults, each with different shrines and practices. The stories about Exodus hadn't been formalized in the scripture yet, and the later parts of the Bible had not happened yet. So we get a really fascinating talk about, or we're going to, about the life that the Bible, you know, talks about and like what that life was actually like. And then later, you know, the victors get to rewrite the story and how they edit it and compile it. So we talk about the Deuteronomic school were the ones who purge Asherah from the Bible. They're the same ones who wrote Deuteronomy, of course, as well as Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. Uh, what kind of people were they? And we're told that they were, gosh, this is a long chapter, nationalists, monarchists, centralists, the forerunners of the Pharisees. Yeah. Uh, talk- Basically, he says the Deuteronomists codified the religion. They made it into an organized, self-propagating entity. Uh, I don't want to say virus, but according to what you just quoted me, the Torah is like a virus. It uses the human brain as a host. The host, the human, makes copies of it. And more humans come to synagogue and read it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so if not for the Deuteronomist, the world's monotheists would still be sacrificing animals and propagating their beliefs through oral tradition. Yeah. And, and so we, we, 
Okay, we'll talk about the Assyrian king Sargon II, you know, having recently conquered Samaria or northern Israel. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think we need to go too into the weeds there, but we're basically learning, like, like, you know, he mentioned, like, sharing needles earlier. He says, well, when are we going to get stuff about Lagos? Did he ever say anything about the Bible being a virus? And Lagos, he said, he said it had certain things in common with the virus, but it, that it was different. He considered it to be a benign virus. Like that used for vaccinations. He considered the Ashira virus to be more malignant, capable of being spread through exchange of bodily fluids. Ooh. And so here it says, so the strict book-based religion of the Deuteronomist inoculated the Hebrews against the Ashira virus. Yeah. So uh, I guess I guess if we're if we're kind of taking this all as read, it's like there was like the time of paradise, and I think it's the is it the Ashira virus? The fucks that run up and then Enki cures it. That that seemingly we're 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 led to believe that Ashira is the more negative destructive force. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that Enki basically had to separate people along with, with to, some to prevent them from spreading it, I guess. And and you know, in combination of strict monogamy and other kosher practices, mm-hmm. um, as such with Lagos to be a much less susceptible viral infection because it's based on fixed written records. Um it, it, I like this term informational hygiene. Yeah. 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 He says Juanita, you know, made a comment to that effect. I'll bet she did. She's starting to make more sense to me, Juanita is. Oh, she never really made much sense before. I see. I think that if I can just spend enough time with you and figure out what's going on, what's on Juanita's mind, well, wonderful things could happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Back to work. This is no time for a hard on. <laughs> it seems that Ashira was a carrier of viral infection. The Deuteronomist somehow realized this and exterminated her by blocking all the vectors by which she infected new victims. So like they're very strict, like, you know, Torah as law kind of policy is, is what kind of cleaned the, the information, you know, the informational hygiene there. So theoretically though, you have Enki who passes down this Namshub mm-hmm. and the Deuteronomists are kind of the, the living stewards of it, like modifying. I don't know if, don't know if they are necessarily related to the Namchub or not. I feel like the Deuteronomists know that like they have to keep their information clean and consistent or else well, they'll be vulnerable to Ashira. If they're not on Enki's side, they are counter to Ashira. Yeah, yeah. Um, um so the librarian uh they're talking about the, the viral infection here. He says you may wish to examine herpes simplex, a virus that takes up res- residence in the nervous system and never leaves. Is capable of carrying new genes into existing neurons and genetically re-engineering them. Modern gene therapists use it for this purpose. Lagos thought herpes simplex might be a modern, benign descendant of Ashira. Mm-hmm. So this metavirus that the cult of Ashira could spread is something that can affect you at a physical level. Yeah. Yeah, that was the, it could alter the DNA of brain cells. That was the mm-hmm. backbone of, his, of Lagos' hypothesis with the virus capable of transmuting itself. And transmit a sting of DNA into a set of behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, what behaviors what was Ashira worship like? Did they do sacrifices? And he's like, no, but there is evidence of cult prostitutes, both male and female. Does that mean what I think it means? Hero asked, religious figures would hang around at the temple and fuck people? Yep. More or less. Yeah. yeah. Time, time to get back to an earlier forked conversation. Yeah. The connection between Ashira and Eve here. Um, obviously, they're both associated with serpents and whatnot. Um, and then Hero starts a conjecture here. He says, I wonder if viruses have always been with us or not. There's sort of an implicit assumption 
that they have been around forever, but maybe that's not true. Maybe there's a period of history when they were not they were non-existent or at least unusual. And at a certain point, when the metavirus showed up, the number of different viruses exploded and people started getting sick a whole lot. That would explain the fact that all cultures seem to have the myth about paradise and the fall from paradise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's as though good and evil were invented by the writer of the Adam and Eve legend to explain why people get sick, why they have a physical mental virus. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So the Adam and Eve story would have been written far earlier than the Deuteronomist, but they were right in later books. They had editorial sway over the earlier books and could have rewritten the the, uh, Adam and Eve story as a political allegory. Uh, Yeah, yeah. They start quoting, I think, Nicholas Wyatt's radical interpretation that Adam and Eve as a political allegory uh, by the Deuteronomist. Which is... Uh, completely different off point, but but your Nicene Council, you know, and just like how do we recreate Christianity to to control people, you know, at the fall of Rome, the Roman Empire? Uh, yeah, so some- we, we start talking about Eden, which uh, can be understood as just the word for delight in Hebrew. So the expulsion from Eden to the bitter lands of the east is a parable for the massive deportation of Israelites to Assyria following Sargon II's victory. Uh, according to this interpretation, the king was enticed away from the path of righteousness by the cult of El with its associated worship of Asherah, who is commonly associated with serpents and whose symbol is a tree. So they're basically saying like Adam and Eve was just like propaganda for this thing that happened in yeah. like 900 BC Which, or, or 722 BC, I think. So led to this whole like diaspora. Yeah. yeah. Um, perhaps because no one was listening to them. They also invented good and evil too as a hook. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so their predecessors Sargon attempted to keep conquering, but the Deuteronomists were counseling leaders of Jerusalem through religious reform and some civil engineering, like basically creating like clean water supplies and not so clean water supplies. They prevailed. The conquerors were met with something virulent, something that got into their water supply. Yeah, we, we quote from Second Kings about um, you know that night the angel of the Lord went forth and slew 185,000 in the camp. You know. Uh, and so we're, we're interpreting that. Um, I think this is Hero. So it's it's some of these sections. It's hard to see who's talking, but yeah. I think Hero says, "I'll bet he did." So let me get this straight: the Deuteronomist through Hezekiah impose a policy of informational hygiene on Jerusalem, and do some civil engineering work. He said they worked on the water supply. And librarian says uh, he's quoting: "They stopped all the springs and the brook that, that flowed through the land, saying, Why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water?'" That's from Second Chronicles. Uh, then the Hebrews carved a tunnel 1,700 feet through solid rock to carry that water inside city walls. And then as soon as the uh, Senna cherub soldiers came on the scene, they all dropped dead of what can only be understood as a virulent disease to which the people of Jerusalem were apparently immune. Hmm, interesting. I wonder what got into the water. Yeah. That's yeah. where we end. So uh, we're, we're radically reinterpreting a lot of the Old Testament to be kind of both useful propaganda for the people of the time and also um, sort of mystical explanations for something that may be a virus and sort of like, like viral warfare. Not to compare it to the movie Troy, but Mm -hmm. I think one of the things I find refreshing about the movie Troy is there are no Greeks, gods and goddesses, but like real people and how they kind of interpret the actions. And then we'll, create sure. the, the influence of their gods upon this story um so we are right about the halfway point no uh, according to my my apple book thing it says we're 40 percent of the way through the book so okay yeah 
So we're, um, almost, we're getting there. there. I, yeah. I have not read ahead. I can't remember if there's, I think there's still some more big lore dumps, but I think this might oh, have been yeah. the, the, the big one, like all the ancient Sumerians. We're, we're going to find out how Enki brings life. Yeah. It's just fascinating that like, this is a cyberpunk book where there's, you know, pizza delivery mafia guys and, you know, skater chicks and, and, you know, the street, but we just like took this massive detour to talk about like ancient Sumerian religion and yeah. like the Deuteronomist and whatnot for like several chapters. Yeah. You're just, if you've never heard of this book before, you're not prepared for this <laughs> book. And that's, that's what makes it. Yeah, I mean, it really seemed like students and was like, had all these sorts of ideas coming together and one could maybe argue like, Oh, it's too much of an info dump. You should have like written it in such a way that it's kind of more pieced out, but I don't know. I like what he's doing. I'm enjoying it. Well, yeah, the way he, he shares it, I think is incredibly revolutional for the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way you present this in like a cyberpunk book too, especially, um, especially when like, I don't know, man, like the big, the big ideas writer who would like do heavy research, like, like his not quite contemporary. We mentioned before is like Crichton. I kind of like way. How, yeah. I've also felt like Stevenson is maybe a little closer to like Pinchot and then Crichton. Oh, for but, sure. Yeah. As, as the actual writer. But I mean, as far as like your big research writer, because at the time I think Crichton's legacy or his, his legend was that he'd go out and get a degree in a subject and then write a book. That was about his it. big thing. He just becomes such an expert at something that even if his storytelling wasn't the greatest, it was like interesting to read. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think Stevenson's getting degrees, but like mm-hmm. the way he, he dumps his info is yeah. very intriguing. So next is 31 through 35. Yep. We're going to be seeing what YT is doing in the sacrifice zone for the mafia here. I mean, that she's, sounds fun. she's fully in. She's made. Yeah. Can't wait. Cool. All right. All right. Until next time. Have a good one. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.